0: Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Support for today's show comes from The Weather Channel, television's most trusted source for severe weather coverage. Go beyond maps and apps and dive into the science and stories behind the storm. Because understanding our atmosphere is the best way to prepare for severe weather. Every season, every storm, every time you watch. Trust The Weather Channel. Welcome to the Science Podcast for June 30th, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Jeremy Kerr talks about two new studies that take a nuanced look into a certain type of pesticide that may be contributing to the global decline in bees. For our monthly book segment, Jen Golbeck talks with Alan Alda about his new book on communicating science. And David Grimm is here to give us this week's hits from our online news site. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on rogue proteins and Parkinson's disease. Parkinson's disease is inextricably linked with a misfolded protein, alpha-synuclein, that spreads from brain cell to brain cell. But researchers have long wondered what this protein's day job is. What role does the properly folded protein play in the body? So they looked to the gut. Bye there, Dave.
1: So alpha-synuclein or alpha-S, it's known to accumulate in toxic clumps, not just in the brain where it seems to cause the symptoms of Parkinson's, but also in the gut wall in patients with Parkinson's disease, although nobody really knows what effect that's having, And there's also a region of alpha-S that is similar to micro-targeting proteins that are part of the body's immune defenses. So the idea is maybe the normal version of this protein is playing some sort of protective, uh, maybe some sort of immune system role in the gut.
0: And how do they go further and test this idea that it has an immune function? They didn't look at people who had Parkinson's for this part.
1: Well, they looked at 42 children who are very unlikely to have Parkinson's disease because the disease tends to develop late in life. But the children did have abdominal pain, diarrhea, vomiting, and other GI issues, um, and also gut inflammation. And the scientists found the alpha-S protein was indeed present in the nerves of this inflamed intestine um, and that the more intensely inflamed the intestine was, the more alpha S there was.
0: But that doesn't give you, that gives you the correlation, but that doesn't give you the which came first. Did they figure out if uh, AS was leading to inflammation or kind of leading the charge here, or was it just a result of an immune response?
1: Well, it's a great question, and what the researchers did was that they actually they looked at people who didn't have the inflammation yet, and they sort of tracked when this uh, alpha S appeared. They found that it actually only appeared during the infection, not before the infection. And also, when they put uh, alpha S in this in lab dishes, what they found is that it powerfully attracted white blood cells that tend to be present in inflammation. And all this together sort of suggests that alpha S um, is the cause, not the effect of inflammation in the gut.
0: Let's go back to Parkinson's disease here. We have this key molecule. We have it having some immune function in the gut. How does that relate back to, you know, all this neurological stuff that we see with Parkinson's? Right.
1: Well, it's a long way from the gut to the brain, right? And so the idea is, is that perhaps in people that are overproducing alpha-synuclein, and we know that there are people that are genetically predisposed to produce a lot more of this protein than others, that maybe it starts to really aggregate in the gut become very misfolded. And actually, there's a way uh, for proteins in the gut to get to the brain. And so it's possible that if there's this overload of misfolded alpha S in the gut, it can somehow make its way to the brain and cause symptoms of Parkinson's. Although there's no proof for that in this paper. It's just speculation based on what the researchers are seeing.
0: Would the next steps here be to you know, start treating Parkinson's by treating the gut first?
1: Yeah, it's really cool. There's this uh, clinical trial going on right now with a natural steroid made by the dogfish shark called squalamine. And what's interesting about squalamine is it actually blocks the action of alpha S in the gut. Now, the trial is really just to determine if squalamine can stop some of this tissue inflammation in the gut and prevent some of these uh, bad GI symptoms. But the idea is if some of these patients in these trials Um, are predisposed to Parkinson's, the researchers might also be able to tell whether squalamine can prevent Parkinson's from happening or maybe even curb, or at least maybe curb some of its symptoms.
0: Next up, we have a story on our muscle-bound cousins. Chimpanzees are strong. They don't have super strength, but pound for pound, they're definitely more powerful than us humans. Why is that? Are they just you know, they just have more muscle or better muscles. Dave, how, (laughs) how strong is a chimp?
1: Yeah. You know, there's a sort of, this sort of rumor that chimpanzees have like this sort of superhuman or maybe super chimpanzee strength, but actually there's not a whole lot of evidence for that. We do know that the chimps are probably modestly stronger than humans. And we know that they can do some things that we can't do very well. Um, but the question is, why is that? And, um, for this study, the researchers actually looked deep into the muscle fibers of both chimps and humans to see if there were sort of molecular differences going on that could explain not why chimps are stronger than people, but what how their strength differs from the strength of people.
0: So what the researchers here didn't look at, you know, how muscle and bone work together or how much more muscle they have. They went deeper. They looked at kind of the makeup of the muscle itself, the different kinds of fibers. What did they find... When they looked at chimpanzees and when they looked at us, how are the fibers different?
1: Well, there's two kinds of fibers we're interested in that make up uh, muscle fibers. One are called uh, slow twitch fibers. The other one are called fast twitch fibers. Fast twitch fibers contract more quickly and they generate more force than slow twitch fibers, but they also fatigue more quickly. And What was really interesting is that the researchers found that in human muscle, about 70% of it is slow twitch. Versus in chimpanzees, uh, 66% is fast twitch. So there's a much different makeup going on there.
0: That's like the opposite. The majority of what we have is slow, and the majority of what they have is fast. How does that stack up with other animals?
1: Well, it actually doesn't put humans in very good company, at least if you're interested in the sort of fast, brute strength. There's only one other animal besides us that has this high level of slow-twitch fibers, and it's a small, lethargic primate called the slow loris. Oh, man, that Um, is sad. It is kind of sad, but actually, it turns out that there may be a reason we evolved to have these slow-twitch fibers, whereas chimpanzees and other primates, they do these high-intensity things, like maybe they have to lift heavy rocks very suddenly or climb a tree very quickly, Uh, Humans, as we sort of evolved, we came out of the trees, we started traveling long distance. Endurance was a lot more important for us. And that's where slow twitch fibers really come in handy uh, versus fast twitch fibers. And not only that, uh, slow twitch fibers consume less energy and there's speculation. And again, we're getting speculation again. But by saving this energy, we're able to devote those resources into other things like making bigger brains.
0: Hmm. Last up, we have a story on a very old skull cult, and this is the term, skull cult, that caught my attention the first time I came across the paper. What does it mean uh, to, you know, an archaeologist?
1: Well, you know, you hear skull cult, it sounds very evocative, like a bunch of people like sacrificing animals around a fire, but that's not really what we're talking about here. We're talking about an ancient, very ancient, actually, stone temple, 12,000 years old, that was built in southeastern Turkey uh, by um, some very early people, maybe people very much on the edge of our culture, perhaps hunter-gatherers. There is a lot of interesting things at this site. There are thousands of animal bones. There are a lot of human skull fragments. There's a lot of interesting artwork that seems to depict, in some cases. People decapitating other people and even um, people holding other people's heads in their hands. So it's a very sort of interesting, um, you know, culture uh, in this time and location. And what's cool about this new study is that there's now evidence that people were actually doing something to these skulls. They appear to have stripped the skin off them and carved um, deep grooves in the skulls and maybe even drilled holes into them.
0: Okay. So, we have a very, very old site in Turkey, in Southeast Turkey, and it's a religious site. That's the one thing I saw was that this is not a burial ground. This is something, you know, it's not where people lived. It's more of a ritual site. And they right. found these skulls with carved grooves that they've been defleshed, as it's called. What, what, what would be the significance of that? Why would they do something like that with a skull?
1: That's that's you know that's the that's the million dollar question you know it's not a very decorative cut so it may have may have had been more of a, it may have been more functional something that was done to the skull to maybe hang it somewhere or maybe something done to the skull to mark it as belonging to a particular individual maybe a high status uh, individual but they're not they're clearly not making any sort of sort of spectacular designs on these skulls
0: and now this is just three. Parts of three skulls, so it is multiple people that were, you know, they were. I think they were buried, and then there's they were dug back up, and their skulls taken, and then you know they did the they did these markings. Are they going to go like look for the rest of the bodies? I mean, what's the next step for this research?
1: Well, the next step is to try to figure out exactly what they were doing uh, with these skulls and what sort of the import. Uh, this was. Was it a ritual? Was it something sort of non-ritualistic at all? To do that, they've got to gather more fragments from the site, and they're going to start doing that actually this fall.
0: Okay. What else is on the site this week, Dave?
1: Well, Sarah, we've got a story about where modern horses came from. Also a story about scientists using carbon nanotubes to develop the smallest transistors ever. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about how a U.S. House of Representatives panel has nixed President Trump. Trump's proposal to cut National Science Foundation funding, but the House is taking something else in return. Also, a story about a cholera vaccine that's facing a major test in war torn Yemen. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site.
0: Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. Today's show is brought to you by Away. Away offers high-quality luggage designed to be resilient, resourceful, and essential to the way you travel. Available in nine colors and four sizes, including carry-on sizes that are compliant with all major U.S. airlines, the Away suitcase is lightweight and unrivaled in strength and impact resistance. Not to mention, it features a TSA-approved combination lock, four 360-degree spinner wheels. For me, that is key. I do not want a suitcase that can't turn a corner, and a patent-pending compression system to help over packers. Better yet, both sizes of the carry-on pieces are able to charge things through USB. A single charge will power your iPhone five times. And thanks to Away's lifetime warranty, if anything breaks, they'll fix it or replace it for you for life. Try out Away for 100 days. Vibe with it, travel with it, Instagram it, See how it corners. And if at any point you decide it's not for you, return it for a full refund. Shipping is free within the lower 48 states, so you've got nothing to lose. For $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com slash science and use promo code science during checkout. That's awaytravel.com slash science, promo code science, for $20 off your Away suitcase. This week's episode is brought to you by Simply Safe. Getting a good night's sleep is easier said than done, especially if you think you just heard a noise downstairs. Think about it. You know it wasn't the cat. What do you do? You could turn on the lights and keep watch all night, check your kids' beds every hour, sleep with the proverbial one eye open, or you can rest easy knowing that your home and family are protected with Simply Safe. When you install your Simply Safe home security system, you're arming your home with powerful sensors that tell you if a door opens or a window breaks. There's a 105 decibel siren that alerts you at the first sign of trouble, and a dedicated team of security professionals watching you 24 7, ready to send in the cavalry. With Simply Safe, there are no long term contracts, and around the clock monitoring is only $15 a month. So don't spend another night second guessing your home's safety get simply safe and get some rest go to simplysafe.com/listen and get a 10% discount when you order today again that's simplysafe.com com slash s a f e.com/listen for 10% off your order simplysafe.com/listen We've all heard that bees are dying. While this makes a good headline, it's been very difficult to pinpoint direct causes. One suspect has been neonicotinoid pesticides, but it's been a tough case to prove. Now, two studies published this week in Science have provided strong but nuanced links between these chemicals and the health of bees. Jeremy Kerr wrote a commentary piece to tie this all together. Welcome, Jeremy.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: One thing I want to clarify up front is that there really is a global decline in bees and you know some of the ways that we know that that's true.
2: So the first thing you have to understand about this global decline in bees is that there are a lot of bee species in the world, something like 20,000 of them. When people think about bees, they typically only think about honeybees. But that's just one among many. And honeybees, in fact, are not declining at a global scale. Their colony numbers have increased recently but it's getting harder to manage them. For many other bee species, however, we have very good evidence that their populations have declined. Species like the rusty-patched bumblebee in the United States and Canada is now listed as an endangered species. This is just one among many such bee species, which have been pushed to the edge of extinction, and we have measured range losses, that is, they've disappeared from places where they were historically very common. And we see that over and over again for many bee species in both Europe and North America. And because these measurements go back for decades, sometimes even more than 100 years, we are able to detect that many bee species are declining and declining fast.
0: What do these new studies bring to the debate about the link between pesticides or these specific uh, neonicotinoid pesticides and bee declines that earlier attempts have not been able to achieve?
2: One of the most important contributions from this research is that these neonicotinoid pesticides were used in a real world setting, which means that the bee colonies that were exposed to these pesticides were in functioning, productive agricultural landscapes. They were not in a laboratory setting where the researchers put neonicotinoids in nectar and fed that directly to the bees. The bees were foraging out in the wild. And so their exposure to these chemicals was representative of a regular agricultural landscape. And that's really important because this is a real-world demonstration of potential risks of these pesticides. But another characteristic in these studies was that they were conducted across very large environmental gradients. Agriculture in hot, dry places is not the same as agriculture in cool, moist places. So the effects of pesticides used in those environments might be different, too.
0: But despite the complexity and the size of these new studies, what we really learn is that there are many, many variables that are interacting, B-type, location. So what did they find that were some of the most important factors in determining whether these pesticides were harmful?
2: Well, it, it varies Based on the environment that the bees are found in. For example, if you look at the survival of honeybee colonies in Hungary that are exposed to these neonicotinoid pesticides, those honeybee colonies fared particularly badly. But honeybee colonies in Germany responded quite differently. But the take home message from these studies is that the use of neonicotinoid pesticides is kind of like Roulette for the reproduction of bee species, and the more you use, the greater the likelihood that you will run into serious impairment of the reproductive capacity of both wild bees and of domesticated or managed honeybee colonies.
0: right, so the the harms that they saw weren't just killing bees outright. It was much more of a, a subtle or cumulative effect.
2: Well, that's right. At extremely high doses. Neonics can kill bees outright, but that dose level is not really representative of what these bees are exposed to in the field. What they do experience in the field, at field realistic doses, is challenges in terms of reproduction. For honeybee colonies, this can mean things like lower queen production or losing queens completely and colonies then fail between one year and the next, or reduce queen production for bumblebee species.
0: Were you surprised by these results coming? Were you expecting a lot of subtlety and a lot of kind of variability in in the result of applying these pesticides in real-world conditions?
2: We have seen using really careful experimental setups in the past that neonicotinoid pesticides sometimes cause serious harm. And in other instances, do not appear to exert any negative effects on local bee populations. So there's a lot of variation. What these studies do for us is help explain why we get some of that sort of variation. And that for me was a really important step forward. I begin to see ways that we can provide stronger advice to policymakers about when it will be risky to use neonicotinoids and when they will need to be more effectively and strongly regulated.
0: It seems to me this just really strengthens the case that we need to be careful and each environment needs to be thoroughly investigated for whether or not it can kind of take these pesticides in, rather than saying these kinds of locations are dangerous.
2: Right. So what we don't have from this research is an extremely detailed checklist of environments where the use of neonicotinoid pesticides is definitely going to cause problems. But what we do have is clear pointers for the existence of really serious problems for some bee species in some environments. For example, in cornfields around Toronto, we saw a strong decline in the reproductive output of honeybee colonies based on whether they were close to cornfields where neonicotinoids were applied. But that Can interact, the use of neonicotinoids can interact with the presence of other agrochemicals to become almost twice as toxic. So, what we are beginning to see then is a consensus in the evidence that neonicotinoids have serious harms. They cause serious harms for bee populations. And if we are going to proceed without regulating them, we can expect to see pretty serious problems for bee conservation.
0: Now, there have been some attempts to regulate these or or limit their use in in different parts of the world. I mean, aren't farmers really interested in preserving bee populations and and even in wild populations of pollinators? Why would they keep using a pesticide that everyone's pretty sure is doing bad things to bees?
2: Well, the fact is that some of the evidence has been quite equivocal about whether neonicotinoid pesticides cause problems for bees. There are perfectly valid field studies out there conducted in very particular places like Eastern Canada that show that sometimes for some bee populations, the use of neonicotinoids just doesn't cause detectable problems. So when producers use neonicotinoids, what they're trying to do is increase production and the profitability of their livelihoods. They're not trying to cause problems for bees. Our job as scientists is to put the best evidence we can in the hands of people who can use that evidence to make better policy decisions and better individual choices about the use of these kinds of chemicals in agricultural settings.
0: Jeremy, thanks so much for talking with me. Jeremy Kerr writes about bees and pesticides in this week's issue of Science.
3: I'm Jen Golbeck, and welcome to the book segment of the Science Podcast. This month, we're thrilled to be talking with Alan Alda about his new book, If I Understood You, Would I Have This Look on My Face? My Adventures in the Art and Science of Relating and Communicating. Perhaps best known for MASH and his years hosting Scientific American Frontiers, he now works to help improve the way scientists communicate with the world. Alan Alda, welcome to the podcast.
4: Thank you. Good to talk to you.
3: So I'm a scientist and a professor, so I'm actually pretty familiar with the work that you do to help train scientists to be better communicators. But when I was mentioning to people that I was going to talk to you about your book, they all kind of responded like Ellen Alda, the actor. So maybe you can start uh, and tell us how you got started working in the world of science communication.
4: Well, oddly enough, it's through being an actor that I was able to make some headway in improving my own ability to to communicate and then uh, helping others because my training as an actor was mainly in improvisation and not comedy improvisation but a, a more pure basic kind of improvisation where you learn to connect with the other player. So when I was interviewing scientists on Scientific American Frontiers, I finally realized that if I connected with them the way I had in improvisations, it would be a much more open channel between us. And what happened was it not only changed the way I talked to them, but changed the way they talked to me because they responded to that connection in such a natural, personal way.
3: Well, this is something that you get into in a lot of detail in the book is the importance of empathy and listening, uh, which you talk about, you know, both individually, but obviously there's a lot of overlap there. And that can be something that's really hard for, you know, people who are trained mostly to communicate technical content, to learn how to develop empathy for the people who are listening to them.
4: Right. I mean, just what you just said is so interesting. Um if we're trained in technical talk and the person we're talking to is not trained in technical talk, it's kind of an important thing to keep that in mind. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and, and the, that's part of listening. The more listening we've found, more listening has to take place on the part of the person talking than on the part of the person listening, because we have to be listening for how they're getting what we're saying if we're really concerned with getting it into their head, it's so much easier to say, well, why don't they pay attention? Why don't they study this? Why don't they learn it? Why, don't, why do we assume that what's in our head is just as easily available in their head? Theory of mind really can come into play in a very productive way if we keep that in mind that they've got something else going on in there. What What could that possibly be? And how can we use that to make an analogy or to shoehorn what we've got to say into their their mind based on what they care about what their knowledge is up till now what their vocabulary is all of those things kind of play into building a bridge between us or having an open channel and without that channel it's, um, it's, it's a it's a seawall, it's not a channel
3: and i mean i think sometimes it gets even worse than that so i'm A scientist, I'm an active researcher, you know, publishing a lot, but I also spend a lot of time communicating with the public, whether it's, you know, through the press, through talking to people like you. And there's a lot of scientists who want to be able to communicate well. But I talk to plenty of scientists who actually take me less seriously as a researcher when they know I spend time working on being a good communicator. And it's not one or two. Like, that's a common thing I run into.
4: I'm so sorry to hear that I that that that's been called the Carl Sagan effect because he he ran into that, too. The more popular he became, the less seriously people took him as a scientist. I thought we had gone past that. And I'm sorry to hear that you experience it frequently. I think what what maybe is forgotten sometimes is that communication is not something extra that you add on to science when you think about it communication is of the essence of science when after you do research what's the next thing you do you communicate it to other people now true you communicate it mostly to other scientists but doesn't it isn't it a part of science for instance to get funding to do the next bit of research and don't you get funding by the publics being behind it and being willing to have their representatives pay for it. If it's, if it's public funding and in the collaboration between disciplines that's happening more and more lately. And it's just as difficult sometimes to communicate with another brilliant scientist in a, in a different field as it is to communicate with a a fairly well-read lay person who just hasn't read your stuff. So I, I I'm so sorry to hear that it it's still considered less less than serious to communicate with the public well.
3: Well, we're working hard on trying to fix that. Um, And I, you know, I push my own students a lot on this. And so, if you have a scientist, you know, whether it's a new scientist in graduate school who wants to work on communicating well, or, you know, if it's someone who's been around for a long time who finally figured out they have to do this better, what's some advice you have to them if they want to start working on improving those communication skills?
4: Well, I, I, this, to be kind of obvious and self-serving in a way, my advice is to try to get into one of our workshops.
3: Yeah, absolutely, they're fantastic workshops.
4: That's so great to hear. Thank you. I, the, the the reason I say it is, is over the over the decades we we've been doing these workshops for eight years, but it began decades ago with my trying to figure out why communication was working so well. Uh, with the scientists I talked to on Scientific American Frontiers, and since then, since our whole team at the the Alda Center for Communicating Science, since they've been working so hard, really, they did devoted themselves to this. It's like a movement. The energy they put into this, they've they've come up with really wonderful exercises that open the scientist up or the doctor, you know, we've, we've trained a lot of medical students, thousands of them. And the, the big difference is that you over time, you get accustomed and happy about connecting with it, with the other person so that you can open up to yourself in a personal way to them. And they open up personally to you. When that happens, I think you're drawn into them in a more personal way and that's been that's been suggested by some research that that showed that it that when people did that for a week their scores on standardized empathy tests were higher at the end of the week than they had been at the beginning of the week before they started doing it and the more they did it the the greater the effect was for me it suggests it's not a bad idea to pay attention to the other person it doesn't hurt It's like chicken soup. It wouldn't hurt.
3: Well, Alan Alda, it has really been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. And as a reminder, Alan Alda's new book is If I Understood You, Would I Have This Look on My Face? And you can pick it up this month. That's all for the June episode of the book segment of the science podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback on Books at All, the book's blog on the science website. And we'll be back with another book for you next month.
0: And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. Or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps. Or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS.